Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. During the COVID-19 pandemic, millions of Americans have been forced out of work, others have shifted to working from home, and many children and young adults are now attending school at home at least part of the time. Romantic relationships have also been disrupted or affected as some people have shifted to long-distance relationships or quarantined with new partners. What influence are these changes having on communication in families and romantic relationships? That's what today's episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, explores. This question is an important one at the core of all of our lives as we're living today, and we have an expert panel of scholars to help us think through how family communication has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Professors Jeffrey Hall, Mei Chen Lin, and Jordan Solis join me for this interesting conversation. First, a bit more about today's guests. Jeffrey Hall is a professor of communication studies at the University of Kansas. Dr. Hall is the author of nearly 60 articles and book chapters on flirting and dating, humor in relationships, and making and keeping friends. Dr. Hall has been interviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and CNN, among other outlets. We're proud to have you on Communication Matters. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Mei Chen Lin is an associate professor of communication studies at Kent State University. Dr. Lin researches communication and aging, including older adults' identity, intergenerational communication, and difficult conversations between aging parents and adult children. Dr. Lin is currently the associate editor of the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. Hi, Mei Chen. Thanks for being on Communication Matters. Thank you for having me here today. Jordan Solis is Professor and Leland J. and Dorothy H. Olson Chair in Arts and Sciences and Intergroup and Family Communication at the University of Nebraska. Dr. Solis researches communication in multi-ethnic racial families and interfaith families. And Dr. Solis is the past editor of the Journal of Family Communication. Hi, Jordan. Good to see you again. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Looking forward to this conversation. So in those introductory remarks, I talked about some of the ways that family life and romantic relationships have been affected by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. What trends have you all noticed in how family life and romantic life have been affected by the pandemic? Was I right? Was I wrong? Or are there other impacts that you want to indicate? You know, I think the question really should be what hasn't been affected by this Right. I think that if we look at our personal lives, if we look at lives of family, friends, colleagues, if we see news reports, it's, it's everything from how we connect with people, how we deal with disconnection. I think for some people, it's, wow, I got to spend all this more quality time with my family. I got to know my kids more. I got to know my partner more. In other cases, it could be 
wow, I have to spend so much time with these people balancing all these things. So I think that we're still probably not even understanding how this is affecting us so much. You know, we're still in the middle of this. I think we're all dealing with the emotional effects, the work balance effects and all of this. So I don't know if that's really an answer to the trends as opposed to just saying, yeah, it's affecting everything. And I think we're still realizing this as we work through this. I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of our colleagues and friends and family members are facing a particular challenge if they have young children at home with the slow opening of schools and the impacts of the coronavirus on education. Many parents are working at home and working remotely. And I've even read articles about academic couples with young children and where the productivity, the academic productivity in different sex marriages, the woman in the situation has seen a decline in their productivity. So could anybody comment maybe, Mei Chen, on the impact of families navigating work and study spaces at the same time? I think that this question actually related to the first question about the trend that we have seen in the family life. At the very beginning, I feel like we were all on crisis mode. It's like, what do we do? What do we have to do? And so between like children had to stay at home. So how do we deal with the internet issues? How do we deal with grocery shopping? How do we deal with, you know, what's the work situation? So we were trying to sort it out and, and, and just deal with it as it came. But like throughout the summertime, I think that we started to switch to a different mode. It's more of a planning mode to me. It's like now we know the school is going to go remote or it's going to go in person, that my job is going to be in this situation, or unfortunately, many people do not have a job or haven't found a job. And so now what do we do? How do we plan for the remaining year, for the next four months with regard to kids, with regard to our own job situation and try to find resources and supports whenever we can get to sort of plan this, you know, who is going to take the kids to school if that's the, that's the case, who is going to watch the kids while one of the spouse going to. So we, we, I think that we spend a little bit more time on the planning and we continue to be at this planning stage. And then it just now I think as we move into November, many family probably will start thinking about what's going to happen next spring. What are we going to do? How should we prepare? So we are moving into the next stage. There's a lot of uncertainty though, isn't there? I mean, because if you plan and you've got it all set, but then suddenly there's an outbreak in your community and you're back at home, it's got to be difficult for a lot of families to navigate those communication dynamics. Well, I'd say that, you know, our, our entire discipline is committed to uncertainty as a construct that we're interested in resolving, right? I mean, our, our foundational theories are about uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And certainly, this is an incredible case study in how people are trying to navigate times of uncertainty. And the amount of uncertainty is more than I've ever faced in my life. You know, as a parent of two kids of my own, we've had back and forth between the school's different modalities. Our universities that all of us teach at have gone back and forth in what they're going to do. We've had huge disruptions to everything from childcare to whether or not we're going to get paid the same amount. And we're actually, in many ways, the most privileged condition that anyone in this country may be in, is being able to work quickly from a remote location, have the means most likely to be able to provide for our kids and not, not worry about where the next meal is coming from or whether we'll be evicted. So I think that we really, if we broaden the scope of this conversation, you know, this is a fundamentally 
different moment of uncertainty. And I think it's correct to say that we're looking to plan, but I would also say it's correct to say no plans seem to hold up in the climate of this pandemic. Glad you brought up that question of privilege and the relatively privileged position that certainly most of us find ourselves in, but many of those of us involved in higher education find ourselves in because it's complicated for us. It's doubly, triply, quadruply complicated for a lot of other people in working families and that sort of thing. Two things that came up first when you talked about some of the gender disparities, reports or thing in productivity. I think what this whole pandemic has has brought to life is that it just amplifies the disparities that are already there, right? Which is something that the disparities we see in family life, the stressors we see in family life, these have really amplified those. And what I hope comes out of this is that, you know, when we can get back to quote the new normal is we reflect on why this happened anyway, right? The pandemic did not create this gender disparity. It simply amplified this. And so I think there are some things that can come out of this that as scholars, as practitioners, as just people and families that we can work on. The other thing too, when Jeff was discussing this, I thought about um, the notion that you know, if you look at the communal coping literature, for example, this idea that, that we cope both as units, as family units, but sometimes as individuals. And I think that's something that many families are dealing with is that sometimes they have the emotional resources to kind of work together as a family. And other times people are dealing with their own emotions, uncertainty, anxiety, and and can't be part of this. Like, this is our problem. We'll solve this right now. It's, this is my problem. I need to focus on this. So I imagine a lot of us are going through, you know, stressors dyadically as a family, as individuals. And yeah, it's just a really, I'll say interesting time in a kind of euphemistic way. And I, I do think that when we reflect back on this, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to, to look at what we can do to improve family life, improve these disparities we just mentioned. So colleagues and I collected data on the ninth week of the lockdown, right at the beginning of May. And we got a representative sample of Americans to kind of talk about the experience. And you saw more than a third of people saying that they were lonely all the time. We had two thirds of our respondents say that their social needs weren't being met. We had people who were really suffering in terms of their sense of connection to one another. Many families were feeling trapped in their relationships and in their relationships with their children. And I think what's important about those data is that they told us really something very fundamental, which is that, as Jordan was saying, a lot of times this is an an amplification of what resources we already have or don't. If you're in situations in which your relationship is already troubled, this creates such an incredible amount of stress. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that data that I think is pertinent to this conversation is that we looked at whether or not being able to communicate through modalities outside the home, video chat, telephone, email, et cetera, and whether these things tended to be positively or negatively related to the outcomes we're talking about. And what we found was that nothing approximated the strength of relationship for a face-to-face conversation. So although phone calls were positively associated and email was positively associated with getting your needs met and feeling less lonely, video chat was less likely to get your needs met as well as social media. But the bottom line in our research was really that face-to-face communication is still extremely powerful. And we need that sense of connection to one another. And, And many folks right now, especially those who are isolated and lonely, I worry as the winter time comes for most of North America, how many people might feel shut in and isolated as time goes on. That's an interesting insight because the data seems to suggest that technology isn't the fix-all. 
you know that uh, a Zoom call doesn't doesn't quite do it. I know at NCA we're planning for a big virtual convention coming up, and I've been making the argument repeatedly that it's going to be fine, but it's not going to be a replacement for the actual thing that people people enjoy that face to face contact, and that certainly it makes me think too of our aged friends, neighbors, family members who I know face double layers of isolation because of their propensity to really suffer some harm from the pandemic and from the disease itself. Absolutely. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, while we're with you, Jeff, you study and research romantic relationships and particularly flirting. I've been interested to see how some of the online dating platforms are now advertising new ways of connecting and dating. And what does flirting look like? What does dating look like right now? How is that <laughs> changing? What trends are we seeing? What is match.com? Have they found the answer or, you know, what's, what's going to happen here? I'm sure match.com would love it if I said so. <laughs> if <laughs> yeah, if they right. listen to the podcast, of course, but I'll, I'll say this, you know, What's interesting is some of the early literature on this, you know, or at least not literature, but, you know, New York Times reporting and otherwise was saying that what people were turning to was an opportunity to actually spend more time just talking before they actually took the risk of meeting someone in person. And if you think about it kind of from a risk assessment point of view, to go out and have a drink with a, a stranger or someone that you met online in pre-pandemic years was somewhat risky, but you're in a public location, you had some sense of who they were based on their online communication, and then you could evaluate whether or not there's a potential mate. But in, in this era, it's like, we aren't even sure if we're going to spend time with our friends in person. We're not even sure if we're going to spend time with grandma in person. Mm-hmm. So to take a stranger out for a drink in a bar, which is, you know, demonstrably one of the most dangerous environments you can go into, is really risky. So what I'm seeing as a trend is a lot of people are actually spending longer periods of time communicating through these modalities for the sake of trying to create connection. Unfortunately, the literature actually says that that's not the best tactic to finding the closest relationship partner. We begin to idealize our partner. We tend to actually not have as successful outcomes the longer time we spend online. So it's kind of an interesting thing because on one hand, I think people are spending more time flirting through conversation, through company, and through just basically keeping each other, having someone to be around during this time. But on the other side, I think that uh, it's also kind of interesting because it goes against the literature of what we ought to be doing in order to foster better connections. So it's, it's a solution, but not a great one. You also study humor. And this is a, it feels like a kind of humorless time. I study political communication. I've watched as sort of Saturday Night Live has tried to wrestle with how to make fun of and deal with the politics of the era. How do we do that generally? Can humor help us cope? Of course, we think the answer to that must be yes. But, you know, where's the where's the humor here? <laughs> yeah, there there isn't any. And I, I've heard so many people say, you know, I got to laugh because otherwise I'd be crying. I think that that's happening a lot. Whether you're looking at politics, you're looking at national affairs, if you're looking at the fear and the death rates related to COVID, it's, it is a time where we desperately need to be able to laugh. I think a lot of people are, you know, turning to jokes and memes about things related to, you know, where my four o'clock bottle of wine awaits me. And I need to have a, a moment to check out in the sense of humor allows us to create a space of laughing and making fun of ourselves while we cope with all of this. And, and yes, the literature is really clear that coping through humor is one of its most promising functions for creating both in 
interpersonal well-being and intrapersonal well-being. However, in this time, you're right, things are so dire. I, I wonder whether the limits of humor are just keeping us afloat in many ways. We were talking earlier about the disproportionate impact of this pandemic on our older family members, our friends and neighbors who are older adults, I suppose is the best way to say it. Mei Chen, this is an area of focus for your research. I know that you study older adults. Anyone can be affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, but you know the risks of infection are particularly acute for older adults, and we've just noticed or seen sort of this all play out in grand, almost operatic scale with the President of the United States. Do you have any advice for how maybe adult children can navigate the challenges of speaking with their aged parents, their aged relatives Mm -hmm. about the pandemic, especially in these times when people can feel so isolated? Yeah. Well, before I answer that question, first of all, that question is really, I mean, it's really hard to find an advice that will work for all. And then I will give a couple of examples that I think, you know, kind of illustrates how different every family may be facing. But the other thing that is funny and interesting that you're mentioning, uh, Trump's family, <laughs> I think that, you know, the, the idea of, I'm not going to go into political conversations here, but to give advice, it's about how we navigate this situation. First of all, the assumption is that both sides have to be on the same page. So meaning that both sides have to think this is a really serious disease that we need to do something about it. If you have either side that is really dismissing it, what is really not thinking about as, you know, that we need to care so much about it and still go out and have fun and or not really keeping social distancing and it, this is going to be a totally different kinds of situation that we're talking about. So here it is, assuming that both sides are on the same page. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a few examples. The first one is my next door neighbor. She's 96 years old and she fell from her bed last year and went to rehab and then went into the assisted living home. And the assisted living home hasn't opened for any outside visitors since March. So her, there's no family, no friends that can visit in person. So what her son has to do is to call her every day. And two to three times a week, he will drive to her nursing home and then park right outside of her window and then call her. And so that she can look out the window and then they can hear each other's voice. And when I called her, she told me that, you know, she'd appreciate everybody's trying to do everything to keep her safe, you know, keep the residents safe. But it's very lonely. It's very hard, especially during weekend. Okay, so we have this kind of situation. The other situation is, for example, like my own father, he lives in Taiwan and he has Alzheimer's, is already in the advanced stage. And so in February, he had a stroke. And all the three kids are in the United States. So we had to do a long, you know, this is a crazy time to try to find people to help. And then talking with the hospital, the doctors, and trying to find relatives and friends, pull all the resources to find an assistant living home for him. Mm -hmm. But we haven't been able to to, to go back. And then it's been so many months. And then all the converse, and he doesn't really know what is going on. He just know that he was moved from home. So the third situation will be a lot of grandparents that they usually are able to come out and help, right? They usually are coming and if I need a weekend, a way to go somewhere, then I'll call my parents coming over and babysit the kids or give me a few hours so that I can work. 
but that is not happening right now. So what I'm trying to say is we can think of many other scenarios and examples and it's very different. And how you navigate that really depends on how far you are from your aging parents. How many other siblings do you have? What's the pre-existing relationship that you have with the parents? Should you be the one who actually engage in those conversations or somebody else? What are the resources you have that you can actually put together? Who is the neighbor? What's the friends? What's the community? And then you have to assess all those family dynamics together before you can actually, and even with that kind of assessment, it's still not going to give you a sense of certainty. It's not, but that's how complex this is. But I think starting thinking about the family dynamics and the resources that you have. Do you think that as this pandemic continues to go on, we shift from kind of this orientation where we want to protect our older relatives? So in my case, I think of, you know, my multiple grandparents that are alive, my children's great-grandparents, we shift from wanting to protect them to, wait a minute, time is finite with them. Mm -hmm. At what point is staying away for too long, right? That cost, right, outweighs the, the risk. In other words, do you think as this goes on, we start thinking it's time to see people, it's time to take that risk because of that connection, because we want grandchildren or children to spend time with their parents or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I've started seeing that somewhat anecdotally, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Well, I think you're absolutely right at the very beginning. Like I said, is we're trying to figure, we're trying to understand the disease. We're trying to understand how harmful it is to, to the older parents. But I think as time goes on, and like you'd have seen some anecdotals that people started to want to connect they will try to do it in a safe way, go and see their aging parents or their grandparents and keep a, you know, a good distance and even use technologies to try to bring a sense of togetherness so that they can continue that family relationship. I will see more and more of that. Um, of course, winter, like Jeff said, is, is a factor. It's going to be difficult. But I, but I think as Thanksgiving and Christmas are coming up, we do have to think about how do we make sure that they are, they are not being left alone. And that this is going to be hard too. One of the saddest things for me in all of this COVID pandemic narrative, I suppose, is the stories that you hear of people who are actually dying in hospitals or hospices or other care facilities. And because of the pandemic, their family and loved one can't be there. And Mei-Chin, some of what you study is also end-of-life relationships and end-of-life communication. Are these stories, I think, accurate of the ways in which these important end-of-life conversations have changed Mm -hmm. in this pandemic? And and what do we do about that? Because I find them just heartbreaking. How do we navigate that? (laughs) Well, I I think the answer is yes and, and no. A research already shows um, I mean, the conversation and the life conversation is very, very minimum. People do have a tendency to avoid those kind of conversations for many different reasons. But research also shows that uh, aging parents do not necessarily want to involve their children in this kind of conversation, either because they don't want to burden them. They don't think that their children are level-headed enough to handle a lot of the decisions that I have to make when it comes to that point, or they just don't you know, want to keep their independence and autonomy. You know, this is their private information. 
they want to keep it that way. So um, I don't know for those people who already have everything set up, would they say, you know, let's have a conversation now? I don't, I don't think so. But they probably will remind their children where everything else is. You know, remember this, remember that. But I, I'm hoping for other people who haven't had the chance or don't know how to open the conversation, this will be the time. Because you are right, there are many people that I know that they did. They unfortunately had to say goodbye or didn't even get, get to say goodbye and didn't even know how to deal with their parents' wishes. And I'm hoping that they, that will, you know, even if we don't want to start by saying, oh, I don't know what's going to happen to you. Because this pandemic shows that it's not older people that are at risk, right? Because anybody with underlying condition, anyone could be affected. So we can always start the conversation by, you know, I want to ha- talk about this because it affects everyone. It could be me. It could be you. So let's talk about what would be the best way that and to deal with this if that does happen. The other thing with this is that I don't see a lot of people talking about is the mortality salience that is all around us, right? For a variety of reasons, perhaps the the divergence in views among this polarized population about the significance of this. But, you know, we're living in a backdrop of just horrendous loss of life, of suffering, in addition to it affecting us emotionally, affecting our family lives. There's a lot of research that also shows when mortality is salient, that can amplify our biases, our attitudes towards others in, in, in a negative way. It can create more hostility. And I think that's something we haven't also talked about. We're, we're especially in the United States, which is very much conditioned not to talk about death, not to talk about end of life, as Mei Chen just talked about. Mm-hmm. I think this is forcing a lot of people to confront or spend a lot of time denying some realities out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how does that affecting us? How's that affecting social relations? How's that affecting our children? Right? Because at some point, when this is all over, we're going to reflect on this and realize, wow, when you look at the numbers, when you realize the stories, Trevor's, you talked about behind these numbers and the, the narratives of this, you know, we need a national cry, <laughs> you know, just, mm-hmm. just to let the emotions out, which I think so many people are dealing with so many different things. We have yet to kind of have this on an individual level, community level, even national level. I also am curious if it's disproportionately overwhelming. And here, I'm interested in the research that you do on race and identity in particularly, because one of the things that I think should be part of our national reckoning, (laughs) our national cry, our national mourning, but may not be and hasn't been as fronted as much, perhaps, as we might hope, is the glaring sort of disparities and the disparate impact of COVID-19 on underrepresented minorities, on all sorts of underrepresented folks. And what are the communication challenges that we face, I think, on, on that level? Or, you know, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is, how can we bring that more forward and how can we talk about it more openly as a culture, I think? Yeah, I think the way you framed that was important, right? Because at the beginning, we talked about this is a podcast about family and interpersonal and romantic relationships. And, and, and we have this idea, well, 
how are these families in minoritized ethnic racial groups managing this, talking about this? But maybe that's not the important question, right? Because all the pandemic or the BLM movement has done is amplified, as I mentioned earlier, these systemic biases and systemic racism that's there in our structures and our institutions. So it's not that it created anything new. It's not that all of a sudden, you know, families are like, wow, there's racism out there or we're disproportionately affected by this, right? So many of the communicative processes and messages that we already see out there in terms of preparing for bias, understanding how to deal with the healthcare system that maybe not trust or understand all of these things that, that families from minoritized groups have to deal with in everyday life is just, like I said, amplified. So the question moving forward is not so much what do the families need to do? It's what do we need to do as a society, as a structure, looking at these structures, understanding this, instead of putting it on families, putting it on ourselves, you know, turning the spotlight on these institutions and what is creating this disparity, you know, racial inequities are health inequities. And that's what we need to need to focus on. And again, going back to what I discussed before is I, I really hope that coming out of this, this is one of those things that happens that we realize there's statistics that explain this. And then there's the why. And if we don't dive into the why, then that's going to be extremely problematic. Jordan, I do have a question, though. So I understand that it's very important to have that conversation as a society. But just, I'm also wondering, how do families of minorities talk to their children about all this social inequality, digital divide, racism that they are seeing right now? How do they help children to make sense of what they are seeing and experiencing themselves firsthand? Well, if you look at the, the literature and the research, not that I've done personally, but in, in a variety of all other disciplines, they'll look at these specific messages, right? That, again, preparation of, of bias, cultural socialization, who you can trust, who you can't trust, how to buffer against these discrimination. And again, it's, there's not always a one-size-fit-all, as you mentioned before, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, again, it's this extra layer of kind of socialization and role of families that we know occurs in minoritized family, whether it's ethnic, racial in countries or, you know, religious minorities in different countries. And again, going back to what I said before, is this is something that's been going on for centuries, right? (laughs) I think this also somewhat speaks to this notion of when we talk about race and families, So Dedrick Williams, who is a family sociologist at University of Tennessee, will talk about that we're all racialized, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to understand that white is racialized also. So some of these questions that we ask, we need to also recognize how is whiteness racialized? So how are families talking about race in light of the pandemic, in light of the BLM movement? We also need to shift from a tendency to think that only applies to minoritized ethnic and racial families? And and how are white families talking about this? How are they talking about these structures? Mm -hmm. How are they talking about what they're doing to create the digital divides, to reify these things? Mm -hmm. So again, I think there are, I'm not even going to say opportunities. There's necessary directions we need to go 
in understanding this to kind of alleviate this institutionalized bias and in, in mm-hmm. racialized structures. Yep, I mean you're absolutely right. You know, when you said that, you know, why you know privileged groups also need to talk about this, not just the minorities that need to talk about it. On this note, I was talking to uh, Mackenzie Manier, who's a professor at University of Georgia in their communication department. You know, there's been more attention than I think in the past about, you know, with BLM and, and more of the support from communities you typically didn't see. And, and she was discussing about what's this going to look like? Is this more kind of performative support or is this something that's going to be long-term enacted? But it's not just about talking about race, talking about privilege, but how they're doing it, right? Are they doing it in this kind of egalitarian colorblind way, which is there's major issues with that because we know then that these children and people don't see race and people need to see race. They need to see racialized structures. So it's not just about our people talking about this, but how they're doing this, how they're talking about this and how do we get families to talk about race and racism and racialized structures in a way that can truly enact change as opposed to kind of this somewhat fantasy way of, you know, colorblind, we're all equal, let's just love each other because you're then not respecting the experiences of others. So imagine that it is five years in the future. It's October 2025, and we're all getting ready to go to Denver for the NCA annual convention that November. We've already signed the contract, so that's where we're having the convention in 2025. And the three of you are on a panel, and the panel asks the fundamental question, how did the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic change family and relationship communication? I think a lot of this is dependent on what ends up happening in terms of the reckoning that Jordan is bringing to our attention. If it comes to pass that we're at a watershed moment of both issues around politics and issues around racial reconciliation and reckoning, particularly issues that have to do with the problematic situation we're in right now where white privilege now has a president who's all, you know, white supremacist. All of these conversations are going to be contingent on what happens next. And I wish that I could say how the election will turn out. And I I wish that I could say that once that election turns out that way, that in two years, there'll be landmark legislation that will protect people's health, that will look after the the most needy, that there will be universal health care that actually is provided that makes sure people aren't having kind of pre-existing conditions and basically structural factors that make them more susceptible to the disease. But I think that it all depends on basically what we all do as a country around politics. And, and I have to admit, I, I lack optimism on these issues uh, for many good reasons and, and some that really has to do with the, you know, the problem that there are structural inequities that are built into the way that a representative government works. And those inequities aren't going to be solved easily. So I fear that our answers to those things are really based on a really big picture question of how harmful this will be depending on how long it lasts, how impactful, how successful that vaccine is, and all of those things are are yet to be known. But I don't look into that crystal ball and see an optimistic lens on it. I think it's hugely contingent on vaccines, policies, structures, and all of those things go back to to politics. Okay. From the humor scholar. Yeah. Yeah. Quite quite humorous. Uh That's right. That's a joke I'm going to (laughs) remember. Never been good at creating humor. Always really good at studying it, though, right? (laughs) 
I will say as a family communication subdiscipline, what I hope this does is continue the movement we're starting to see about not looking at families in isolation from the context, right? That, that you cannot understand families without understanding the larger structure. So almost as I've been talking with colleagues and, and some of my students, really bringing in this more socio-ecological framework and, and providing a communication perspective on that and understanding families, because what we're realizing and everything we've talked about is families are embedded in systems and they're embedded in social structures, whether we're talking about gendered, racialized, just whatever we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to see coming out of this is really taking that idea and seeing that evident in our research, in our teaching, in our practice as family scholars. And I think it applies to, you know, interpersonal relational scholarship also. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with what Jordan was saying is that I, I, I think that, you know, because my research is really focuses on elder abuse. And this pandemic really shows how prevalent elder abuse, I mean, it's already prevalent, but it will continue and will be more prevalent when older people are in isolation. But this is not just a family issues. This is a system issue. This is a community issues. And I'm hoping that this will be framed, which already being, but more research will be done to really understand that interconnectedness between the family and the caregivers and the community together to try to minimize the occurrence of elder abuse for that matter. But in terms of racial issues, <laughs> I remember showing my students a PBS documentary and it was done in 2016. And there was Black Lives Matter movement. People were protesting. People were marching. People were trying to make a difference. If you didn't see 2016, you can just see it as 2020. You know, and it makes me wonder, there's nothing. We haven't made a lot of a progress. So like Jeff, I'm not so optimistic. But, but I think an interesting direction for family communication will be how do family talks about these social cultural issues. And we, we tend to study family communication topics more about relational based or conflicts, for example. But if we can move that conversation to this level and see what the influence of family can be to actually um, uh, create that activism, create that motivation to want to do something different. May Chen, that was a great segue to our sort of final wrap-up question, which is, after all, the podcast is entitled Communication Matters, and so we're always interested in how communication matters. And in this pessimistic kind of dystopia that you all suggest is, is coming five years down the road, can communication make any difference? What do we believe is the future and the hope for our communication? in the midst of all of this trauma and death and <laughs> despair. I was thinking of a, a positive, noting that I had been so dire and Jordan called me out on being a humor and flirting professor that's doom and gloom. I thought, wait a second, you're right. I don't I think it was that something. far. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, one of the things that I have noted that could be something very positive and change is that in my own family, I've certainly recognized that the importance of slowing down, spending time with my family, 
you know, recognizing we don't need to rush off to do everything. And because there is nothing to go to, nowhere to right. go. <laughs> right. In some ways that being able to just walk in the park or being in a place where we feel comfortable, not around other people, but just around each other. And I, I wonder whether or not we're ripe as a time in our country's history to move away from fast, highly programmed, very chaotic families to maybe ones which are more comfortable spending hours and hours of their days just hanging out, you know, mm -hmm. just doing whatever and just kind of just being rather than being programmed. And I, I will say that all kind of circles around this kind of fundamental belief that I have, which is that we can build important relationships and meaningful conversations with one another. Those things are sustaining and nourishing of our well-being. And that can be done through humor and affection, but it can also be done through play and having fun. But I think it all has to revolve around making time for it. And if there's anything that this pandemic taught me is once you take away all of those things we were supposed to do, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of time to have. So I, I hope that if the future comes that we'll go, wait a second, we don't have to be this busy. We don't have to be this programmed. We can make time for each other. And, and maybe that will happen. That would be a beautiful thing if it did. Yeah, I agree. I like the H word there too, hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this has shown one thing is how important connection is right? And think about how much of us are going to be so excited the time we get to see some friends or family face-to-face, -face, getting to hug people, right? Getting to show affection to people in ways that, you know, we ran into someone the other day and we just kind of gave air high fives and it seems so <laughs> just odd. So I think there's that connection part that Jeff just talked about and that hope. And then what we're also seeing on the kind of larger social cultural part is that we can give voice, we can give recognition to people, right? Whether it's talking about how families talk about the experience of individuals or groups, or whether we're talking about more public protests or these larger social discourses, is when you give voice and recognition to people, and that happens on a communal level and more people are doing it, that's how you start enacting change because people start to care. So I think we've seen both the negative side of that or the dark side of that, right? But we've also seen, Trevor, we just talked about the hopeful side of this, right? And, and so that's why we all do this because we know that communication does matter, not to sound too cliche on that, but with connection and with change. That's the only way we do it. They, they already said it very well. I'm just thinking about the, because I'm teaching synchronously this semester. And then I noticed uh, students are really trying to give each other encouragement over chat. You know, they are, they are trying to respond. Oh. They are trying to say, you know, that's a very good point, And I'm sorry you're going through this. I think this pandemic teaches us don't take anything for granted, including communication. And I hope that we will come out of this to be more intentional with the way that we communicate with other people, knowing that it's not always there. It can be broken right away. And then so we will be more intentional the way we connect with other people. Yeah, well said. And, yeah, I agree. And <laughs> I'm going to intentionally thank all of you for this great conversation. I really think that we've tackled a number of important and pressing issues confronting our families and our nation and the world as we all confront this COVID-19 pandemic together. And listeners, thank you for tuning in again to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, and this timely and powerful conversation about family communication and how useful it can be and must be for navigating this ongoing public health crisis. 
In NCA news, NCA's Teaching and Learning Council has developed a growing list of online teaching and learning resources that are relevant to the COVID-19 pandemic. The page includes advice and tips for faculty and students, as well as course development resources and information about online teaching platforms. The Teaching and Learning Resources page also includes a sampling of free-to-access NCA journal articles that are relevant to communication amid crises and disasters. The resources will continue to be updated, so be sure to check back for new information. Please visit natcom.org slash online hyphen teaching. That's natcom.org slash online hyphen teaching for this valuable resource page. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C., The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.